Hey, it's Jeff, and welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. So if you're hunkered down at home right now, uh, it may be a good opportunity to check out our course platform at onecommune.com, where you will find programs from Marianne Williamson, Deepak Chopra, Russell Brand, Wim Hof, Brendan Burchard, Adrian Mishler, and many other brilliant personal development and wellness luminaries. Our courses span yoga, meditation, spiritual development, functional medicine, recovery, and social impact. Essentially, everything you need to be holistically well. Just go to onecommune.com. And if you are one of the superheroes on the front line, a healthcare professional, supply chain worker, delivery person, scientist, government worker, you will be stressed to your limits, both psychologically and physically. And even 30 seconds of deep breathing and grounding can help you stay centered and focused. We need you and we support you. So if you are someone on the front lines and could benefit from a meditation course on your phone, in your pocket, email me at jeffk at onecommune.com. That's jeffk at onecommune.com. And I would be more than happy to set it up. My guest today on the show is Allison Barringer, the creator and host of the podcast Bodies. Bodies combines investigative journalism with spellbinding storytelling to uncover the mysteries of the female body, many of which have been disregarded by modern medicine. The inspiration for Bodies came from a deeply personal experience, which Allison and I will discuss on the show today. Her fearless and compassionate journalism has given women the platform, and the confidence to tell their stories and be heard. Allison also helped launch a women's health education nonprofit called Passant, whose mission is to develop and facilitate transformative personal health and wellness education for adolescents in South India. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Allison. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. You know, I was in my mid twenties, and I fell, I like fell deeply in love for the first time, and was with this guy, and things were going great. I thought I was going to marry him, um, and then all of a sudden, sex started to become painful, um, and I had never had any issues with that before. And at the time, I was kind of like, oh, I don't know, like maybe it'll go away, whatever. And it wasn't going away, and it was just getting worse and worse. And I remember I went to my gynecologist. Um, and she was just kind of like, oh, lots of women have pain with sex, like use more lube. You know, I'm like 25 at the time, like this should not be happening. Um, but she was pretty dismissive um, and, you know, was like, what's wrong with me? Like was really embarrassed about talking about it. And, you know, my boyfriend did know, but I don't think that I maybe communicated the full extent of it. Um, and I don't think that he really like maybe responded in the best way or was as supportive. Um, so, you know, I was like, okay, I guess, I guess I'm just going to live with this. Um and then eventually through a friend, I ended up figuring out that 
the birth control pill that she had had she had had an issue with the birth control pill herself and that she had also had painful sex and figured out that the cause was the birth control pill Hmm. so when she says this to me i'm like oh my gosh like could this be my problem and it was just it was crazy to me at the time because i didn't even think twice about the pill like half the time on intake forms i wouldn't even include it It was just like oh the pill like everyone's on it what could it do it's harmless um but once that friend told me about that i started researching more and more and what i found was that there are a lot of side effects of hormonal birth control um and one of the understudied under researched ones is low libido pain with sex um or just like general pain in the genital area um and so i ended up seen a specialist and he diagnosed me with um, vulvodynia from hormonal birth control. I went off the pill. I did some pelvic floor physical therapy um, because basically there had been a secondary symptom where like because I was kind of tightening and bracing against the pain that caused a muscular problem. Um, And basically just to back up like how the pill works is that it um, it like changed the um, it made my skin in the vulva area like really thin so that was really causing a lot of irritation and pain um so i went through this whole thing um and i was like oh you know i ended up breaking up with this with this boyfriend you know i think i kind of realized like yeah this is not really working out um and i kind of like put it behind me and i was like i'm over with this part of my life i'm so embarrassed by it like i'm over i'm finished with this relationship done with painful sex and just kind of went about my life and in the meantime was getting into podcasting and worked on another podcast show. Um, and then about a year later, I was, you know, thinking like, you know what, I really want to like write about this story or make an episode about my own personal story. Because what was happening is I kept talking to friends who like didn't know anything about the side effects of the pill or were having painful sex. And it was just so fascinating because every time I told my story, inevitably someone would be like, oh my gosh, I was on the pill and I got really depressed. I was almost su- like I was suicidal or I went on the pill and I had this side effect um, or I also had painful sex and it was because of this other thing. So I was like, okay, I think this needs to go out there. Um, But then the more I started talking about this idea of like, oh, I think I want to tell this story, the more I started having conversations with friends or like random people I would meet at parties about their own personal stories. Um, And I mean, it was just all the same things. Like maybe it was fibroids or another condition, but there were so many plot points of like, this person wasn't believed. Um, once they figured out what was going on, they kind of realized the reason that they didn't know this information was because of um, sexist medicine or misogyny in the medical field or because women's issues, you know, if you look across history, have just been completely under-researched, underfunded. So that's the that's the long story of how I came up with um, the concept of body. So the first episode is my own personal story. And then each subsequent episode is a different person's story. And, you know, kind of the point is to really investigate the way that going through a medical mystery or medical problem impacts your relationships with yourself, with your family. How does it change you? Like, what are the ways that you learn about yourself? And that's kind of like the thing, you know, you said the show feels personal. And that's why it's because like all the people that we speak to are really willing to open up and like we like to say like go there they're willing to go there and talk about those those hard things yeah i mean it's um you're incredibly vulnerable and and honest um and in the show and um i think just sharing your own story allows people to see their own story in yours 
Um, mm-hmm. And it just sounds like from kind of the anecdotal um, descriptions that you're giving me now, just breaking the dam around subjects that our society might consider as taboo just opens up this uh, just kind of an epiphany for people to be able to share because they don't have that outlet. And like, I mean, you even said, uh, even with your own gynecologist, there was like sort of like a somewhat passive dismissal of the problem. And it is amazing how many people do want to share. And even just when I was playing your first episode that, as you said, is, is autobiographical, um, in my own household, um, I have three daughters. My eldest is 15 and, Mm -hmm. um, and she really wants to go on the pill. And this Uh is a subject of a lot of internal family debate. And, you know, as I'm sure you've discovered in your research, um, the pill is often actually not necessarily used primarily as contraception in some cases. It's used as symptom management. And, you know, she's starting to become sexually active. God, she's going to kill me. Um, But (laughs) but really, you know, for her, it's like, like, I don't want to have a heavy period. I have brain fog. I have anxiety. I have acne. I have all of these symptoms that, will all be addressed through this pharmaceutical, uh, essentially synthetic yeah. estrogen. <laughs> and, yeah. and so we're having this debate internally and we really wouldn't have had it. I don't think if we hadn't listened to that episode, cause we could have easily mm-hmm. just swept it under the rug. I mean, we have a pretty open family and, and relationship, so I'm not saying that we wouldn't have had it at all, but I think the fact right. that you, are out there kind of breaking taboo subjects really helps families and women have these topics or or, or discuss these topics. And one of the things I found really informative and fascinating about episode one um, is not only your compelling journey, but a lot of the interesting history around the pill itself. I wonder if you could talk about that because there's a bunch of things that I'd never heard of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, there's, you know, maybe a five minute section of the pill of, of there's a five minute section in the episode where we go into the history and that, I mean, it could have been its whole own episode, but I mean, some of the things that really stuck out to me. So, um, you know, the pill was not, did not really go through adequate testing before it came to market. Um, it was tested on a group of women in Puerto Rico without their consent, actually. Um, and the doctor that was doing the on-site testing, um, told the researchers back in the States, like, hey, you know, there's, we're having a lot of side effects. Like, you know, there, there's mood, they're having mood issues, um, anxiety, like kind of listening through all these, all these side effects of the pill. Um, and, you know, the, the, the main researchers were like, well, did anyone get pregnant? And they were like, well, I mean, yeah, no, I mean, it worked in that respect. Like no one got pregnant. And basically they're like, all right, we got it. We figured it out. Um, and so it goes to market and um, this first original pill, and then maybe like 10 years later, um, there ended up being this big hearing um, in Washington, D.C. about all the side effects of the pill. Um, there were women dying from pulmonary embolism, blood clot, stroke, like all these really horrible side effects were happening because in the original pill, the um, hormone dosages, I think it's like 15 times what a pill is today. Mm. 
Um, and I think one of the big issues with the pill is that, you know, that was happening in, I think, like, 70s or 80s. Um, and the pill really hasn't changed that much since then. Like, there has not been a lot of innovation around the pill. Um, and just to speak to what you said before um, about pills, the pill being used to manage just symptoms of puberty, just like changes of puberty, that it's it's such a I could go off for a while about that. But it's it's really problematic because mm -hmm. a lot of times what we see as well is like, you know, teenage girls might have a little bit of weight gain or bloating or anxiety and then they get put on the pill. And instead of um, it's not solving any problem, you know, it's not regulating anything. It's just masking problems. And so oftentimes what this what the pill ends up covering up is PCOS, endometriosis, other hormonal issues that don't actually end up getting appearing until later when, say, the person is trying to get pregnant. So that's another that's a whole nother thing. But yeah, I mean, the history is is really, really interesting. Um, and we can just kind of see that the the health of and I guess the other thing I'll say is like sexual pleasure was not part of the equation. Um, it was about preventing pregnancy, um, which is a is a valid thing. And, and it has, you know, a huge part of women's liberation was the pill. Um, but if you're needing to go on a pill that's going to make painful sex painful or, you know, reduce your libido, what kind of liberation is that? Exactly. And that was actually, you intuited the question that's been um, circulating in my brain, which is there's sort of a double-edged sword to the pill because as you point out, Margaret Sanger and, and Planned Parenthood, this has been long held as sort of archetypes of, of feminism and women's liberation. And certainly the pill as it pertains to you know, sexual liberation or obviously women in the workplace, you know, but that played an incredibly important role culturally in that time and, and still does. Um, mm -hmm. At the same time, I think what you have astutely pointed out is that there are tremendous negative implications and side effects um, you know associated with that and essentially like it begs the question of like are there other ways to address contraception <laughs> that don't fall necessarily solely on the female A lot of discomfort, pain, and disease for women seems to come from using external agents or invasive surgeries that are marketed to them under the banner of improving their lives. Um, mm -hmm. And I wonder if that was, was that a theme is that a theme? And was that sort of something that you expected going into it? Uh, it's been interesting because as you were saying, like, you know, Johnson and Johnson probably won't sponsor this <laughs> podcast. So going into the second season of the podcast, we've done two episodes on products that Johnson and Johnson sell that have kind of proven to be really dangerous. Um, one vaginal mesh, which, which is often used for um, pelvic floor prolapse or urinary incontinence, and also Johnson & Johnson baby powder, which is found to have trace amounts of asbestos. And there's a lot of allegations about it causing ovarian cancer and mesothelioma. And it was interesting because um, 
when I was doing the research for the second season, I was like, oh my gosh, I wonder what was the company that made my birth control pill? Because it had been a while since I had done the reporting on that episode and I hadn't listened for a long time. And I went back, I was like, it's Johnson and Johnson <laughs> yeah. um, who made the pill that I was on. Um, and, you know, um, so a lot of times the um, there's two questions that come up in a lot of bodies episodes. The first question is like, what's wrong with me? The person who's sharing their story is like, what's wrong with me? Um, but then once they get to their answer, the second question is like, why didn't I know? Why does this product exist? Or like, why hasn't anyone done any more research on it? Like, why didn't we know more, basically? Um, and I think kind of in a lot of bodies episodes, it, it boils down to this like trifecta of isms. It's like, what you know, why is this the way it is? Well, it's because of um, sexism. It's because of capitalism. It's because of racism. And I mean, I think there's like a lot of other isms and layers in there. But I mean, I think capitalism is one of the big ones. And I think that we see in this country the way that the health of the individual is not really, um, uh, it's not really prioritized. It's about making money. Um, and, you know, so like, why are they advertising to teenage girls that it's gonna, you know, make their pimples go away and, um, you know, all these other things. It's because they want to sell sell their product. They want to make money. Like, it is it is about making money. Um, and I think that comes up in pretty much every episode. We see the way that capitalism and money and multinational corporations are calling the shots when it comes to our health. And I think in pretty much every episode, we see, like, kind of the disastrous consequences that that has, especially for women's health. Yeah. Let's talk and unpack a little bit uh, that elixir between capitalism and racism um, yeah. as it specifically pertains to the episode, The Cost of Silky Soft, and yeah. the story of Crystal, um, I suppose, who's mm -hmm. the, the, the main protagonist in that. Can, do you mind talking a little bit about that episode? Yeah, so um, I came across this story about how... Um, in like, I guess, 2018, at the end of 2018, there were um, Reuters published this big piece exposing how Johnson & Johnson knew since the 1970s that there was trace amounts of asbestos in their baby powder, which causes a very deadly cancer called mesothelioma. And basically, Johnson & Johnson um, covered it up. Like, they didn't inform the FDA. They didn't inform consumers. And even as recent as this past fall, there was a recall on... Um, 30,000 bottles of Johnson Johnson baby powder for asbestos. So that's kind of one part of it. Um, and something, though, that then later we found out in the reporting is that Johnson & Johnson was specifically targeting African-American women. Um, and when we looked into that further, we found that there's this whole history of um, companies targeting African-American women with, like, deodorant feminine deodorant sprays there is this there's this great re researcher named michelle ferranti and she did this side-by-side -side comparison of um black lifestyle magazines in the 70s and 80s like um ebony jet magazine and compared it to white lifestyle magazines like life magazine for example and she compared the advertisements in the two and what she found was that in these black lifestyle magazines every every edition had um advertisements for um, douching products, feminine deodorant sprays, and they did not exist in the um, 
like life magazine and so basically her argument which i think is really compelling is basically you know companies were playing on these like racist sexist sexist notions and tailoring their advertisements to a group of people and you know the only way that companies sell a product is by telling their consumers you have a problem right like we're not going to go out and buy razors and shave our legs unless we've been told that having hairy legs is a problem you know the same can pretty much go for like any kind of beauty or like self-care item um and so i think in that case we and and there's also internal documents that show that in the early 2000s when baby powder sales were going down johnson and johnson was like oh where should we turn to oh the african-american community we know they use this let's double down on our marketing to them and you can and you can see in these internal documents like kind of the calculated way that they were thinking about this and of course like marketing to a specific demographic like that's yeah that's not a crime but what is is like having a potentially dangerous product and then doubling down on your marketing yes well certainly the dangerous project is a crime but i think there's something more potentially more insidious going on which is that essentially capitalism by its definition exists um, around notions of projecting messages and images of unattainable success Mm -hmm. and then goes about its marketing as you say to establish a problem and that's generally by saying you're not enough. You don't meet mm-hmm. those standards. But to uh, to compensate for this perceived deficiency, we are gonna market and sell you this particular product. And in this particular case, which seems to be sort of a distillation of the grotesque, is that they're preying upon people that are most vulnerable in the sense of mm-hmm. how they feel not enough and that is African-American mm-hmm. women. So what's implicit here, or what I got from the episode, is that there's some sort of implicit message that says African-American women are dirty and don't smell good, and so we're gonna market this product to allay those qualities. And mm-hmm. that's pretty disgusting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. kind of reaction do you get from some of the pharmaceutical and cosmetic companies that you're calling to account, if any? Yeah, I mean, in both the um, Johnson & Johnson baby powder episode and in um, the episode we did about... Um, transvaginal mesh we i mean we reached out to johnson and johnson and they give pretty like boilerplate responses of like oh we tested the product it's safe um and i mean i think it's also um you know johnson and johnson is just one of the many cosmetics companies that use talcum powder which is like the um the mineral that they're using that contains asbestos and you know johnson and johnson is just one of many pharmaceutical companies that is making this transvaginal mesh um And I mean, the response is typically the same. Like they don't really engage more than to say like, our product is safe and refute, you know, some of our other, our findings in our, in our reporting. So the topic 
um, of the day is obviously COVID-19. And Mm -hmm. um, I wonder what your thoughts are around COVID-19 and its relationship specifically to women, kind of both psychologically and physiologically. Yeah, so, um, you know, as this was happening, myself and the bodies team, you know, we're, we're trying to make sense of this. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for the world? What does this mean for our work? Um, and something that kind of immediately came to mind and something that we were seeing was how this was, exp- um, you know, affecting pregnant people and new parents, people who are giving birth. Um, and something that um, I've been very interested in us covering is postpartum mental health. So a lot of people are aware of postpartum depression, but there's actually like a whole category um, called um, postpartum mood and anxiety disorders. And so that encapsulates postpartum psychosis, postpartum anxiety. Um, And in talking to doulas and doctors and people, um, a lot of our reporting showed that, you know, one of the first lines of defense against these postpartum mood and anxiety disorders is ensuring you have a good, solid community network, Um, having a postpartum doula come to your house and help you with nursing, having a lactation specialist come if you're having breastfeeding issues, Um, you know, really having a community around you that's helping you, like all of those things. Um, And so, I mean, my first thought was like, okay, all of this like first line of defense is being stripped away, right? Like people can't have their parents come into town, you know, in New York City, for example, you're limited to one support person in the room, most people will probably choose their, their partner, Um, they're not, there's not space for a doula. Um, And so, you know, that's kind of what we've been doing a lot of thinking about. And actually, our upcoming episode is about um, navigating birth and the postpartum period during this uh, time of coronavirus. Mm. Um, And you know, we also, we spoke to a bunch of doulas and, um, you know, the other thing came up and I think we're seeing this across the board with the effects of coronavirus, but, you know, the people who are most vulnerable in our society already. So, um, people who are low income, um, black and brown communities who are already negatively affected by the way that the healthcare system just like does not value their lives as much. Like we see this, um, in the data, uh, those people are even more disproportionately affected. Like I'm sure you've also been seeing the news about how um, it's low income areas, it's black and brown communities that have higher death rates from coronavirus. And so similarly, um, you know, in the birth space, we especially need doula support people to help people navigate the healthcare system when they're giving birth. And so to strip away those those safeguards, those supports is, I mean, it's really, um, it's really important to talk about um, new parents, birthing people, new moms in this conversation, because, you know, unlike a lot of other life events, um, you know, elective surgery, birthday parties, graduations, these things can go online or they can be postponed. But like birth is a landmark life event that that's coming. Like it's, <laughs> there's nothing <laughs> you can do about it. Yeah. And the other, the other thing I'll say is that um, it's been shown that having a traumatic birth um, increases your risk for postpartum, um, mood and anxiety disorders. So, um, I mean, 
a lot of people are having traumatic births right now, you know, not being allowed to have their part. There was a couple weeks in New York City where, or maybe a week in New York City where people, no one could be with the person in the birthing room. You know, the chaos of the hospital, I think, is going to have downstream effects on postpartum mental health. So I think that's just like as a society, as people, you know, who know other people who have had babies recently, like we should be aware of. Yeah. Now, even my brother um, went with my sister-in-law yesterday to get an, an ultrasound and they made him stay outside. And um, and he's kind of like, well, okay. But it's not about him. <laughs> it's about her because, you know, this is her first kid and she's the first ultrasound. And she's like, wait, I, I kind of, not only do I want to share that experience with my partner, I have a certain understandable anxiety that I need that support and, and I want to share. Yeah. yeah. So it's uh, that uh, the erosion of that community network is, that's a really interesting point. Um, and uh, I'm friends with a functional medicine doctor named Mark Hyman, who actually conducts, trials in treating chronic disease um, at the Cleveland Clinic, and he will treat um, groups um, together that are have some form of chronic illness, often diabetes, mm -hmm. um, and then treat patients one-on-one. -on -one. And by a factor of like three or four X, the people that are getting treated in community are recovering quicker um, because wow. they have that sense of, com A, there's a sense of accountability, but they have that sense of mutual support and that mind-body connection, which is obviously becoming real science now. Um, yeah, of that, finally. Yeah, with, uh, around anxiety and stress and that um, and its relationship to the immune system, to the body in general, um, yeah. which is a other big topic. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's real. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's um, it's a crazy time and your other point around how, you know, a lot of people, there's a lot of memes out there around like COVID-19. It doesn't discriminate on the basis of, you know, race or sexual orientation or, you know, gender, whatever it is, mm -hmm. you know, it, it gets us all, you know, but, and the virus itself might not discriminate, but what it is putting a microscope on is the fact that society does. And that, yeah, you know, absolutely. I also seen that some of the same statistics that I'm sure you're reading in the New York Times that I read yesterday, which one was in Louisiana, for example, 33% of the population is African-American, but 70% of the deaths of the fatalities from COVID-19 are African-American. And what that points mm -hmm. to is the ground conditions, essentially, the underlying conditions in which people are living. So already with chronic disease, obesity, uh, um, compromised immune systems. Um, so while the virus itself might not be discriminating, it certainly is putting a microscope on a society that has a lot of inherent problems. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. What are you most uh, excited about in your upcoming work? And, and are you thinking, mm. and how, you know, just from a sausage making perspective on the podcast, because yeah. I, um, yeah. like, how, do, how does that happen? You know, how do you guys think about it and, you know, vet ideas and actually make them happen? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I started this second season with 
a Google Doc of, you know, about 20 different conditions that uh, we were hoping to cover. And a lot of that's actually at this point sourced from our community. So um, we have this really amazing Facebook group that's kind of, you know, related to the podcast. And um, yeah, so a lot of our ideas for this season were informed by people like emailing us and writing on the Facebook group. Um, So, you know, once we have that list, we kind of narrowed it down and then set out and started reporting. And so, you know, for example, the episode that I was talking about with um, transvaginal mesh. So that started as a bigger picture idea of medical devices. So there's this great film um, about medical devices. um, And and so we were interested in a birth control device called eSure, which has injured and killed a bunch of women. We were interested in breast implants and also the transvaginal mesh. And so we kind of set out talking to as many people as we could, joining Facebook groups, doing Twitter callouts, you know, talking with activists. So, you know, we probably talked to five or 10 people, you know, across those different things. And then we ended up realizing, okay, mesh is pretty underreported. There's a lot of interesting stuff about the FDA in here. Let's narrow in here. And then between myself and another reporter on my team, we, um, what we call pre-interview. So we got on the phone with probably like at least 10 different women and spent, you know, between 30 and 45 minutes hearing their story and taking a bunch of notes. Mm. And then what we do, we bring all those pre-interviews and conversations to an edit meeting. And, you know, sometimes you have a conversation and I mean, all of these conversations, I should say like all of these conversations are really valuable because they help us understand like, what is the common experience? What is the broader landscape? Um, And then we come into these edit meetings and we're like, you know, the thing that we're really looking for with a body story is not just a medical mystery. We're looking for a person who has changed and grown and there's a parallel story of growth along with their medical mystery. Um, so I don't want to give away too much of this of this episode if people listen, but basically we ended up connecting with this woman named Melinda who um, alongside of her, this journey with Mesh had this really incredible story about um, – Growing up in the Mormon church, um, she was basically pressured into giving up her daughter for adoption when she was 16 and, and a single mom. Um, and so the through line of that story is about consent um, and how she you know, thought she consented to this mesh surgery, but she really didn't consent because she didn't know all the information. So there are these kind of parallel narratives of consent and what it means to give true informed consent that we see with mesh, but also this personal journey and and there's evolution and there's change and she basically like has this really incredible epiphany through the end of the story in episode one there's this really emotional suite um exchange that you have with your mother and if i remember correctly she was raised as a fairly strict catholic um, yes that's right and you're talking about issues that are very very personal um Mm -hmm. related to sexuality and clearly she loves you deeply but those just weren't things that were talked about and Mm -hmm. is that changing Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. I I think they are. Um, I had a lot of people after that episode aired 
both friends and, and strangers reach out and just say like, you know, similar to you, like, oh my gosh, that part made me cry. Or, mm-hmm. um, oh my gosh, like I called my mom up and we had a really similar conversation or like that inspired me to have this conversation with my mom or to have this conversation with my daughter. So I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that the younger generation is really open about this stuff. Some may say like too open, but I don't know. I don't really, I don't really think it can be too open about this stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, and basically like one of the main things that my mom said to me, which, you know, you can hear at the end of the episode is basically like, I, like I tried, but like, I didn't, I didn't know how to talk about sex. Like no one really explained it to me. Like I didn't know how to have that conversation with you. Um, and I think that, with a lot of things, especially navigating sexuality or talking about it, you might want to talk about it, but it's like so much easier said than done. Like it's really hard to find the words if you've never had that kind of conversation modeled for you or if your mom didn't tell you these things. Like it's hard to conjure the words out of thin air. It's hard to conjure up these skills for talking about these complex nuanced things. Um, But I do think it's changing and I think that – you know, we see that with the way that people are interacting with the show and the way that and and the other thing I'll say is that I think that in a lot of our stories, one of the greatest triumphs of the 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 person who's sharing their story is is the is the fact of telling the story. Like there's, you know, the first episode in this season is about a woman who has a sexual disorder. Um and I was the the fifth person that she told this story to. Um and so I think that there's still a lot of fear about telling things, but I, I think that's been from the feedback that we've gotten one of the most powerful things, like just hearing people again and again, like sharing these really tough things. Yeah, I, I, I think that it's inspired people to share their own stories, like with their friends, with each other. Totally, totally. I agree. Um, my last question is about men. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I noticed that the Goldsteins, <laughs> both the you know, two doctors that yeah. are Goldsteins, um, you know, were both fairly evolved. And mm-hmm. I wonder kind of now that you've done so many different um, episodes, but also even, you know, it sounds like eight, 10 X times more um, interviews. I wonder yeah. w- what your takeaway is in terms of like the role for men in this discussion and what men can do to help? I think it's about like, this might be an oversimplification, but I really think it's about listening, just listening, like not talking, just listening. Um, And it's been pretty interesting because there's been, I would say maybe like five, six percent of the people that are in the body's Facebook group are men. And I get to see because I approve everyone individually. Um, And a lot of them are like, you know, my wife sent this to me. I just want to like learn and listen. Um, So I think just like kind of, you know, and and it's a podcast. So, you know, you can listen. I think like, you know, you can just listen both to the podcast, to anything to read. Um, I'm not, that's a great question. I'm not sure I have like action points necessarily. Um, But yeah, I think that just like, general empathy and understanding maybe yeah i'm just gonna go with that i'm just gonna go with listening (laughs) 
I'm not saying anything because I'm listening. Um, um, Well, I I think that listening is really good advice. Um, And I'm kind of in in it right now because Mm -hmm. my girls particularly, like, they don't really want to hear anything I have to say anyways. Yeah. Um, Yeah. They just want to be heard. And, yeah. and as much as I want to tell, you know, especially my eldest daughter, like, listen, I've, you know, accrued tools over multiple generations of reading books mm-hmm. and practicing meditation and, you know, reading dusty old scrolls, you know, like, um, <laughs> I have the answers. And if, you know, you apply these techniques of self-transcendence, you won't worry about the material world. You'll be happy. <laughs> and you know, God is right where you are. You know, <laughs> I'm so tempted to go into my litany of aphorisms um, right. about how the world is, you know. And, um, and I think, you know, really, I just need to shut up and um and just let people be heard and um you know this is a little off topic but i i had this um new year's eve party up at my this ranch up in topanga and a lot of people just brought other people so i didn't really know who was there but it was about 50 people or so and um and I got up and we were all kind of sitting around these big outdoor tables and it was a lovely dinner. And, um, and I got up and I said something. Um, and, you know, I was like, if, does anyone have any hopes and dreams that they want to share around the decade that's coming? Mm-hmm. And, you know, one person kind of raised their hand and got up and spoke beautifully and eloquently. And then the person to right to their left was compelled to do so and then it all of a sudden took on a life of its own and it was very very clear that everyone was going to nestle in for about an hour and a half while every single person (laughs) went around um, this kind of like distorted circle and said something and um, then we were like halfway through or maybe two-thirds of the way through and there was a woman who I didn't know she got up. She's like, I've never said anything before in public. Never. I'm petrified. And to be honest, like, I hate New Year's Eve because I was an alcoholic and mm. a drug addict. And I'm five years sober. And I just don't have anywhere to go or anyone to be with on New Year's Eve. Mm. So I called my friends and they said, come with, come, you know, she was actually from out of town. She was from Minneapolis. I think she flew to Min- from Minneapolis to LA, ended up at my place. And she's like, I feel so held here. I feel so heard. Mm. And, you know, there were a lot of people that got up that were not necessarily like professional public speakers, but certainly were very right. comfortable in that space that gave like mm-hmm. eloquent speeches with little punchlines right. and all this kind of thing. And they were great and it was comedic and enjoyable. But I will always remember this woman more than anything that anyone else said because really she just had never been heard. 
Mm-hmm. And that stuck with me as maybe that is the greatest gift that we can yeah. give. It's just to let people be heard. Yeah. Yeah, mm. I agree. Yeah. Allison, thank you for your incredibly honest um, and vulnerable work and for uh, for telling really brave stories and and enabling other people to tell really brave stories. Um, and like I said, I, I know, even from personal experience, that other people see their own stories and, and the ones that you're bringing to the fore. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate the space to, to talk about it. And I'll say one one thing about this conversation with your daughter is, I guess I guess to me, like, I think that the pill does not, it's not a simple equation of pill equals liberation. You know, it's like more complicated than that. And and I think kind of actually like knowing your body, understanding it, um, that's kind of the way, the way to get there. Thank you for listening to today's show. If you would like to learn more about Allison and the Bodies podcast, go to allisonberinger.com. And as always, feel free to email me directly at jeffk at onecommune.com. I love hearing directly from you. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you. Mm-hmm.